0: We are now listening to British Murders, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is part one of the season six special. I aim to release this two-part episode on the same day, split up into two, I'm not going to call them bite-sized portions, they're going to be both pretty hefty portions I must admit. It's a hell of a complicated case is this, it does definitely warrant two parts, based on bite-size it could warrant three or four, but releasing both parts on the same day it's going to prevent you from waiting a full week for part two, no teasing going on here, this time... Before we get into part one, let's break the ice as we always do. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. Here is part one's Dad Fact. Debris is easier to remove from a barbecue grill while it's still hot. Use a pair of long-handled tongs to remove the grill from the barbecue, and then use a long-handled wire brush to scrape off any food debris before the grill has had a chance to cool. That is a good tip. You know what it's like when it goes rock hard and cold. It's a bugger to get off. You might as well buy another one. Do it when it's warm. That's a top tip. This case was suggested via email by listener Victoria Craig and via messenger by Kath McCartney. We're in the Scottish village of Birkenshaw this week, which is located in North Lanarkshire. Here are five quick fire facts about the historic county of Lanarkshire. Number one, Lanarkshire is home to two UNESCO World Heritage sites, New Lanark and the Antonine Wall. New Lanark is a former 18th century cotton spinning mill village, and the Antonine Wall, known to the Romans as Vallum Antonini, maybe it's the Antonine Wall, was a turf fortification on stone foundations built by the Romans. Number two, Bothwell Castle is situated on a high steep bank in South Lanarkshire. The 13th century medieval castle played a key role in the wars of Scottish independence. Number three, Lanarkshire was rich in coal from the mid-18th to the early 20th centuries. It produced more coal and employed more miners than any other county, but also accounted for more mining deaths than any other county. The two worst ever Scottish mining disasters, the Blantyre and Udston mining disasters, both occurred in 1887. Number four, Lanarkshire hosted the International Children's Games in August 2011. And number five, Hamilton Mausoleum is located in South Lanarkshire. It was the resting place of the family of the Dukes of Hamilton, and its high stone walls used to hold the record for the longest echo within any man-made structure in the world. took 15 seconds for the sound of a slammed door to fade. I love that fact. I couldn't give many facts away about Birkenshaw. It's a tiny, tiny little village. The only things it's known for are the Birkenshaw Trading Estate and our villain, for this special episode. He used to live there. There's no census data this week. I couldn't find any for Birkenshaw. Let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. As always, listener discretion is advised. Our villain this week committed all of his crimes in Britain, but he wasn't born here. Peter Thomas Anthony Manuel was brought into the world by his mother, Bridget, on either March 13th or 15th, 1927. As with many old cases, there are so many discrepancies with the details, so please bear that in mind as I tell the story. I'm telling it to the best of my ability based on the sources used. I'm blaming the sources. Peter Manuel's birthplace was Misericordia Hospital, a three block medical centre located in the New York City borough of the Bronx. You heard that right, this so called British murderer was born in America. The reason he was born across the Atlantic is that his parents moved there in 1925 to seek out a better life for themselves. They even left their firstborn child, James, who was born in 1923, with relatives back in Scotland when they made the move to America. The plan was to work their way into a position of being able to afford to fly James over to live with them. He was looked after by relatives in the meantime. Samuel Manuel, the unfortunately named father of James and Peter, was originally from Lanarkshire, and he was a welder by trade. In 1920s America... As the country headed towards the Great Depression, work was hard to come by. Samuel and Bridget settled in Detroit originally. The patriarch of the Manuel family worked in the state's booming auto industry as a car body maker. Peter was two and a half years old when the infamous Wall Street stock market crash happened in 1929. Understandably, that was a tough period for everyone, not just in America, but worldwide. The Great Depression lasted 10 years between 1929 and 1939, and Samuel figured if the family were going to struggle, they might as well struggle back home in Bonnie Scotland. So that's what they did. The Manuel family moved back to Scotland in 1932. Peter was four or five, depending on the month they moved. One source indicated that Samuel had fallen ill to some significant degree. So again, he figured, if I'm going to be ill, I'm going to be ill back home in Scotland and not America. I understand that the family settled in Birkenshaw initially, hence the future nickname of the Beast of Birkenshaw, which along with Scotland's Frankenstein is what Peter would refer to himself as. Despite his parents being from Scotland, Peter it must have felt that his true home was America. Living anywhere from birth until the age of four or five, and then suddenly moving over three thousand miles across a huge body of water to settle in another country, it must have been difficult. My daughter's a similar age to what Peter would have been and I can't imagine the effect moving to America would have on her. Kids are highly adaptable, though. Another shock for Peter was that he finally got to meet his brother James, who would have been seven at that point. Two years later, in 1934, Samuel and Bridget brought a third child into their lives. This time it was a girl whom they named Teresa. As you'd expect, Peter had an American accent at that point. As a result, the Scottish kids at school teased him about it persistently. To make matters worse, Peter was said to have struggled with the accents of the local children. But seeing as though his parents were Scottish, maybe that was a fabrication by Peter. You'll come to learn that pathological lying was not only something Peter frequently did, but it's something that he saw as a game. From the start, Peter showed signs that he was not your run-of-the-mill law-abiding kid. He often broke the rules, with one of his favoured pastimes being to draw sexually explicit images during lessons. It makes me think of Seth constantly drawing dicks in Superbad. An arrogant young man, Peter was desperate to stand out from his classmates. If that meant getting attention due to negative behaviour, so be it. They say that kids who lack positive attention often act out to get negative attention because any attention is good attention to a kid. They crave it, trust me. A young Fight Club member in the making, Peter continually provoked his classmates to try and get them to fight him. Perhaps living in America during the time of Prohibition-era gangsters such as Al Capone, Dutch Schultz and Machine Gun Kelly, not the so-called rapper, rubbed off on young Peter. By 1937, the then 10-year-old Peter was already well-known to local law enforcement as a petty thief, a vocation he would continue throughout his teenage and adult years. He reportedly had a probation officer even back then, and he said that his juvenile record was the worst he'd ever seen. The infamy Peter desperately desired was slowly becoming a reality, even at the tender age of 10. The family moved around a lot, not just within Scotland, but south of the border in England too. The work search was a continuous struggle for Samuel, which eventually saw the family move to the West Midland city of Coventry when Peter was around 12-ish. The language barrier claims intensified, as Peter now had to adapt to the strong West Midlands accent after having previously claimed to have struggled with broad Scottish. Whilst in Coventry, Peter was sent to several approved schools due to his lack of discipline, but each school struggled to keep him contained. He constantly escaped, with one source claiming he did so 11 times. Being as slippery as an eel is another trait Peter had that we'll look at regularly throughout this story. The bizarre thing about Peter's lack of discipline at school was that he was actually incredibly intelligent. Typically, you may expect someone who causes massive disruption in school to struggle academically, but that wasn't the case with Peter. Whilst in and out of approved schools, Peter would continue to further his education by completing the schoolwork he had missed during his lessons. It's believed he thought he wasn't fussed about school because he thought himself significantly smarter than he was. He was arrogant to a fault to the point that he would go on to represent himself at most, if not all, of his trials as an adult, despite no formal training as a solicitor. In 1942, in the middle of World War II, 15-year-old Peter Manuel took his breaking and entering hobby to another level. A sole female occupant had her home broken into by Peter. Rather than leaving the woman to sleep and stealing a few items from her home, Peter decided to wake the woman up and attack her, he brutally whacked her head with a hammer, his weapon of choice at the time. It's unclear what the result of that attack was. It seems as though Peter may have been convicted of the assault but wasn't sent to jail. It was common for Peter to talk his way out of being sent to prison for the crimes he committed, and the story does get a little hazy around this point, I must admit. Regardless, his burglarizing continued, as did his sexual assaults on women. For some of those, he does appear to have served jail time, or at the very least a period of time in a young offenders institution, but the story gets back on a more linear track in February 1946, when Peter was 18 years old, going on 19. It was during that month, a few days after Valentine's Day, that Peter first bumped into Detective Constable William Muncie. DC Munsey would become synonymous with the story of Peter Manuel, but the two first met one day when the former was investigating a house that had recently been burgled. It was one of many houses that had been broken into recently. Peter strolled down the street by the house and happily gave the officer his name when asked to disclose it. Such was the bravado of the wannabe American gangster. Whilst frisking Peter, D.C. Munsey found a gold watch in his pocket, an item that had been reported as stolen from one of the aforementioned houses. Not satisfied by simply robbing the houses, Peter would choose one and use it as his base. The jury is out on whether this is true, but apparently his base of operations wasn't an abandoned house. It was an occupied residence. If that's true, then Peter was also living there whilst being undetected. His burglary skills must have been incredibly well established. Peter was charged with breaking and entering and appeared in court in March 1946 to stand trial for them. The result was a 12-month prison sentence after he pleaded guilty to the charges. Before being sentenced, Peter's £60 bail was paid by his father, Samuel, which allowed him a period of time to commit further atrocities before his prison sentence began. £60 in 1946 equates to roughly 2700 in 2022, so it was no small sum, especially for Samuel, who was persistently struggling to find work. The key thing to discuss next is that brief period of time when Peter was released on bail. At the time, the Manuel family lived in Mount Vernon, a residential area in Glasgow's East End. The family moved around a lot, as I mentioned earlier. Three attacks on women in Mount Vernon during March 1946 would all later be attributed to Peter Manuel. The first attack was on a mother walking along a dimly lit footpath with a three-year-old son. Taking his victim by surprise, Peter jumped out from his hiding place and tackled the unsuspecting woman to the ground as her child watched on in horror. The path appears to have been at the top of a steep bank, with the pair tumbling down it during the scuffle. In a weird chain of events, Peter suddenly stopped attacking the woman and made his way up the bank towards the no doubt crying child. He didn't attack the child, he intended simply to escape the situation. In the middle of doing so, Peter had another sudden brainwave and made his way back down the bank. The woman, still on the floor, was subjected to a series of hard kicks from her attacker before he finally stopped and walked off, this time without returning. Amazingly, the badly beaten woman was able to struggle her way back up the bank towards her child and made her way to the local police station. She explained to them what had happened and even provided them with a detailed description of what her attacker looked like. With Peter Manuel well known to the police, The officers had a good idea about who her attacker was. Peter wasn't brought in by the police then, as he was laying low for a few days. They couldn't find him. Despite laying low, Peter continued his spree. The second of the three attacks occurred within 24 hours of the first. The victim again was a young woman, but this time she didn't have a child with her. Peter attacked a nurse who was making her way home after finishing her shift at the local hospital. He was brazen with this attack. As the woman made her way down a footpath Peter stood in the open ahead of her a short distance away. The only way she could get past was to walk directly around or through Peter. He was blocking a path. Sensing danger it's unclear whether the nurse stopped or slowed considerably because Peter decided to run at her rather than wait for her to reach him. Tackling her as he had his victim a day earlier the two tumbled to the floor but Peter quickly gained the upper hand. After punching her repeatedly in the head, she let out a scream so loud that it took her attacker by surprise. As a result, Peter ran off for fear that the loud scream would attract somebody's attention. Again, Peter's description was given to the police, further convincing them that he was the one responsible for both attacks. Still unable to be located by the police, Peter attacked the third woman shortly after the second. All three attacks took place within a 48-hour period. He was gone for a total of four days. The third victim, again a woman, was attacked as she got off a bus a short distance from her home. Peter stalked her along a footpath, something which didn't go unnoticed by the woman. Again choosing to run towards his victim, Peter punched her in the head from behind, knocking her teeth out. He escalated things with this third attack. Peter dragged the woman away from the path and covered her mouth with his hand. If she dared make a sound, he would end her life, he said. Peter took the woman to an isolated area near a train track and proceeded to rape her. After, Peter ran away. The brave woman managed to scramble herself up and make her way to a road where she caught the attention of a passing motorist. She was taken to the police station and provided another solid description of Peter Manuel. A pattern was emerging and the police needed to act fast before further women were attacked. As far as we know, those three attacks are the only confirmed ones committed by Peter Manuel. Realistically, it's more than likely he attacked several more women that never came forward. By the time police organised identity parades, known across the pond as police line-ups, Peter was already serving his 12-month sentence for breaking and entering. Only one of the three female victims managed to correctly identify Peter Manuel as being the man who attacked her. One of the other two fainted during the parade and the other appears to have selected the wrong person. It's worth noting that there were no two-way mirrors back then for such things as an identity parade. The victims will have had to stand face-to-face with their attacker and tap him on the shoulder to identify him. I'm not surprised one of the two women fainted. What a traumatising experience that must have been. Peter would go on to be charged with just one of the three attacks. It was the rape of the third victim that saw him appearing at Glasgow High Court in June 1946. Peter refused legal counsel, opting instead to represent himself. His legal work needed some improvement as, despite protesting his innocence, Peter was found guilty by the jury and handed an eight-year prison sentence to be served at Peterhead Prison, a specialist centre for sex offenders. The eight-year term was to begin upon completion of his pre-existing 12-month sentence. Realising that behaving like a model prisoner might benefit him in the long run by having his sentence reduced... Peter would regularly help his fellow prisoners with their reading and writing. Writing things was a passion of Peter's. Poems and short stories were of particular interest to him. He told anyone who would listen tall tales of his childhood in Prohibition-era America and how his dad was a mobster named Old Sparky. I wonder if the other prisoners realised that nickname belonged to the electric chair. Maybe he said his dad was a gangster executioner. Sickeningly, Peter Emanuel was released from prison in 1952 after only serving a total of six years. Pretty shocking, considering he was supposed to serve nine years, which would have been much longer if he'd been convicted of the first two attacks in March 1946. A free man once more, Peter worked various jobs at that time. He wasn't exactly a working man, he wanted to be a gangster. The 9-5 to lifestyle didn't appear to him one bit. It didn't take long for his criminal tendencies to take hold and he soon became an integral part of Glasgow's criminal underworld. Having said that, he spent most of his time liaising with the police as an informant, which gave him a power trip and an ego boost. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. In 1954, The then 27-year-old Peter met a woman who would not only become the love of his life but the separation from said woman would start a chain of events that would change the lives of so many forever. Anna O'Hara worked in Glasgow as a bus conductor when she met Peter Manuel. She appeared to have brought out the best in Peter and he seemingly left his criminal past behind him. Not that Anna knew about that of course. Her family liked Peter. He was the perfect boyfriend. And by May of 1955, his status was elevated to that of fiancé after he popped the question and the pair became engaged. Poor Anna had no idea that her expensive engagement ring, which she proudly displayed, was a fake. After purchasing a perfectly legitimate expensive ring and offering it to Anna during the proposal, Peter one day took it back to the store and got a refund without her knowledge. He then purchased a cheap imitation ring and switched it with the one that Anna had in her drawer, and that's the one she ended up wearing. Weddings weren't something that took a year or two of planning back in those days, as they typically are today. The wedding date was set for July 30th, 1955, two months after the engagement, but it didn't go ahead. The issue was not Peter's sordid past, rather it was his lack of religious faith. Anna and her family were devout Catholics. Peter came from a Catholic background too, but he was far from involved in the religious practices of the church. Peter refused to be involved with mass, an unacceptable stance as far as Anna was concerned. Perhaps Peter feared confessing for his sins, for he had plenty. The breakup took its toll on him, and his usual tip-top appearance became dishevelled. He would encourage his fellow criminals to stay away from women, Such was his bitterness at being separated from his beloved Anna. When July 30th came round, Peter took his frustration out on a 29-year-old woman named Mary McLaughlin. She was arriving home after attending a local dance. Drunk as a skunk, Peter spotted Mary walk past his house that evening, and he decided to sneak up on her from behind, as he had with the three women in March 1946. Covering her mouth to ensure she couldn't scream, Peter led Mary to a secluded area in the middle of a field. He held a knife to her throat the entire time. To gain entry to the field, the pair had to climb over a fence topped with barbed wire. Mary screamed as the barbed wire sliced through parts of her flesh, which led to Peter punching her in the face and demanding that she be quiet. The initial screams from Mary were heard by a man named John Buchanan, a local shopkeeper whose caravan overlooked the field. Concerned at what he had heard, John gathered a group of neighbours and searched the nearby field for the scream source. A policeman was passing by at the time and joined the search party. Spotting numerous people with torches walking nearby, Peter dragged Mary to the ground and demanded she remain quiet and still. The pair lay there for an hour. The knife didn't move a millimetre from Mary's throat for the duration. Once the search party dissipated, Peter began to force himself upon Mary. He sexually assaulted her before stopping abruptly. That appeared to be another trait he had stopping as suddenly as he'd started. For another hour, Mary had to lay there listening to Peter divulging all his problems. Hoping to buy some time, Mary played along and actively encouraged Peter to continue talking for as long as possible. He mentioned how depressed he was after splitting up with Anna, and how he'd even considered suicide at one point. The wedding date was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was during that second hour that Mary realized she had recognized her attacker, sometimes caught the same bus in the morning. As the pair walked back home, Peter began to ask Mary some personal questions about her life. Thinking quickly, she gave false answers to each question. She didn't want him to know a single thing about her or her life. Mary told Peter that she would not report him, but after arriving home and breaking down in front of her family, she decided to report him to the police the following morning. The knife, which Peter had thrown into the ground in the field, was soon found by the police His fingerprints, of course, were all over it. Mary's blood was also later found on Peter's clothes after she correctly identified her attacker in an identity parade. As you'd expect, Peter denied any involvement, insisting he had spent the evening in question with another woman. That woman was questioned by the police, and it was true she had spent an evening with Peter, but it wasn't the evening Mary was attacked. As he had before, Peter defended himself during the trial, and on that occasion, he was successful. Whilst denying his involvement in the attack, the prosecution pointed out that he had already admitted his guilt. At some point when he was interviewed, he did admit that he was guilty of committing the attack on Mary, but the loophole was that he hadn't admitted it when he was under oath. Whilst he was representing himself and putting his version of the case across to the jury, Peter used a clever little trick that was kind of a loophole in the Scottish legal system at the time. It's since been closed. He put across his version of events whilst not technically under oath so he couldn't be cross-examined by the prosecution. That essentially prevented him from committing perjury and led to the jury favouring his testimony. After feeding the jury some cock and bull story about how he and Mary knew each other and they'd simply had a fallout which involved Peter punching Mary in the face, as you do, the jury returned to the courtroom with a not guilty verdict. Talk about feeding someone's already massive ego. He must have had a god complex at that point and felt like one of the untouchables. A free man once more, Peter Manuel would wait until the new year to commit another of his heinous crimes. This time, the result would be murder. Let me introduce a 17-year-old girl named Anne Nealance from High Blantyre in South Lanarkshire. One of six children, she had three sisters and two brothers, Anne worked as a factory machinist for a tailoring firm based in Glasgow. In the holiday period between Christmas 1955 and New Year 1956, Anne had been to a dance and met a man whom she wanted to go on a date with. That man was Private Andrew Mernin, a soldier on leave for Christmas who was in the British Army's Parachute Regiment. They had arranged to meet at a bus terminus on Monday, January 2nd, 1956. One source said it was the Capelrigg Farm bus terminus, but for the life of me I could not find a bus terminus called that on Google Maps or anywhere else online. Nevertheless, they planned to catch the 6.15 bus into Glasgow. Anne set off at around 5.20pm, leaving herself plenty of time to get to the bus terminus. As Anne had feared, Private Mernon was a no-show. She had predicted that would happen to her sister Alice before setting off. Alice recalled how Anne had said if her fears came true, she would return home on the next bus, which in this case was at either 6.40 or 6.44pm. With 20 or so minutes to pass, Anne popped in to see her friend, a member of the Simpson family, for a chat. Returning to the bus terminus in time for her bus home, a disappointed Anne took a seat and sat silently as it made its way towards her home. Molly Peacock was the bus driver for that journey, and she recalled Anne getting off the bus at the famous Willow Tea Rooms in East Kilbride. After spending time with the Simpson family, she left at around 6.40pm to catch the bus back home, and was seen dismounting the bus shortly after. That would be the last time anyone saw her alive. At first, Anne's parents were not worried that she hadn't returned home on the evening of January 2nd. Knowing her better than anyone, they knew that sometimes she would stay at a friend's house rather than come straight home. She was almost an adult after all. By the time January 4th came around, that all changed. A dog walker named George Gribbon found Anne's badly beaten body at East Kilbride Golf Club. George was a keen collector of lost golf balls, that's why he was walking his dog there. The area of the golf course where Anne's body was found appears to be known locally as Capilrig Rig Cops here's what the police believe happened. Anne was walking alone down a nearby road. More than likely, it was the nearby Max Welton Road. She was then attacked from behind by someone far more powerful than her, but curiously, the police believed he was shorter in stature. Peter Manuel was around 5 feet 4 inches in height, 3 or so inches below the average male height in the UK at the time. Anne was around an inch or two taller than Peter, standing at roughly 5 feet 5 inches. Attempting to escape her attacker, Anne headed towards the golf course and lost one of her shoes. It was later found in a ditch. Whether she intended to run towards the golf course or not is not confirmed, but I don't think she would have necessarily had the foresight to make that decision given the circumstances. During her attempted escape, Anne lost her other shoe whilst climbing over a barbed wire topped fence. The barbs caused a series of cuts on her arms and legs. An already bloodied Anne ran with no shoes onto the golf course before her attacker finally caught up with her. Anne was raped and beaten with a blunt instrument, later identified as a length of iron, leaving her skull decimated. The body appeared to have been moved from the kill site to where it was found. It's unclear whether her attacker did that immediately or returned to do so later. Anne's possessions had been spread out over around 300 square yards. Her family were then told that a body had been found and was believed to be Anne's. When Anne's family was questioned, Alice mentioned that Anne had left the house two days earlier to meet Private Andrew Mernin. Alice had been at the dance with Anne when they met, so was able to provide a solid description of him. Private Mernin had a solid alibi, however. On the night of the murder, he was with his friends and family. They confirmed that was the case when they were later questioned. The media dubbed Anne's murder the 5th T-Murder one assumes her body was found near the golf course's fifth tee. At a loss and with no leads to follow, the police were soon informed that Elizabeth Simpson, a 13-year-old girl whose family Anne had visited on January 2nd before catching her next bus, had made an important discovery. She found a handbag at the rear of the property that was later identified as belonging to Anne. This potentially tells us something rather dark about her arrogant killer. To me, this confirms that her killer, spoiler alert, it was Pete Manuel, had been watching her ever since she arrived at Capelrig bus terminus. He must have followed her to the Simpsons' house and made a mental note of the location. How else do you explain why he dumped Anne's handbag at the only other place she visited that evening? Talk about sick and twisted mind games. That was Pete Manuel all over. He thrived off playing with people's emotions and getting into people's heads. His egotistical personality made him believe he could do whatever he wanted without being caught. He was prepared to push the boundaries close to the edge without fear of repercussions. The other theory, of course, is that he wanted to frame the Simpson family as having been involved with the murder. As far as I can tell, that was never considered a viable explanation, and they weren't ever considered suspects. At that point in time, Peter Emanuel was working for the gas board, and some of the projects he worked on were based around the golf course. He returned to work after the murder with scratches all over his face, indicating that Anne did her best to put up a fight against him. Peter was questioned along with other workmen as to what they saw on the day of the murder, to which Peter replied by saying he had seen a beardless man acting strangely in the area. The only strange thing about that comment is describing someone as beardless. Who does that? It was a nonsense story anyway, as most stories usually were when they left Peter's mouth. Knowing what they knew already about Peter and his criminal exploits, the police turned up at his parents' house unannounced a week or so after the murder. As they would go on to do regularly, they covered for their son by saying he had been with them all night at home on January 2nd. Dear listener, I'd love to know what you would do in their situation. As a parent, would you outright lie and cover for your child by saying they were with you on the night of the murder if they weren't? Please get in touch and let me know your thoughts on that one. With no evidence to work with, the police had no option but to stop treating Peter as a suspect. Do you think getting away with murder once stopped Peter from killing again? If you do, this might be the first ever true crime story you've heard. He didn't kill again for a few months. A cooling-off period is synonymous with serial killers. It's one of the things that defines them as such. Peter Manuel wouldn't kill again until September 1956, eight months after killing Anne Neelands. Before we get to their murders, let me introduce the Watt family. William Watt, the patriarch, was a former police reservist with a bakery business and husband to 45-year-old Marion Watt. Their daughter, 16-year-old Vivian, lived with them at 5 Fensbank Avenue in Burnside, South Lanarkshire. They had moved there in the summer of 1956 to make a better life for themselves. By September 1956, Marion was recovering from an operation on her heart, which left her ever reliant on her teenage daughter. To repay her, Marion decided to take Vivian on a short getaway vacation, leaving William at home. To make sure he had his opportunity to relax, Marion said that upon their return, he could have a short getaway of his own. Absolutely, bloody he said. When the pair returned, Keen fisherman William packed up his gear and headed for the Cairnban Hotel, located just off the banks of the Crinan Canal, Crinan Canal, in Cairnban. It's an incredibly picturesque location, by the way. Well worth a look on Google Street View. William made the trip on September 9th, 1956, and on September 16th, a week later, he had his car's engine briefly checked by a local mechanic. He booked a more thorough check for the following day, September 17th. On the evening of September 16th, William phoned Marion at home. It was around 10.30pm when he called. Marion said that she and Vivian were fine, and she no doubt asked him if he was enjoying his well-deserved fishing break. Once the pleasantries were out of the way, Marion explained that 41-year-old Margaret Brown, her sister and William's sister-in-law, had popped over and would be spending the night there. Vivian had also invited her friend Dina Valente around, though she planned to return home at some point rather than spend the night. Could be Dina, it could be Diana, D E A double N A. I'm gonna go with Dina, but as with most things, it's probably wrong. Just like how I say penchant. pension. penchant is apparently not right. The two teenagers spent the evening listening to music on the record player whilst the adults chattered and put the world to rights. When Dina eventually left to make her way home, she didn't know that she would be the last person to see the other three women alive. Peter Manuel broke into the Watt family's home via the front door in the early hours of September 17th, 1956. He smashed the glass window panel and opened it by reaching through and turning the lock. Armed with a British Webley thirty-eight caliber service revolver, Peter had far more than just robbery on his mind. The gun was legally owned and registered to him, by the way. I did say he was a rather arrogant fellow using his own gun. As he made his way around the house, the first occupied room he found was where Marion and Margaret were sleeping. The sisters were sharing the same bed. His first victim was Marian Watt, whom he shot in the head at point-blank range, killing her instantly. Naturally, the noise of the gun going off woke up Margaret. As she attempted to clamber out of bed, she was immediately shot and killed by Peter, who fired the gun twice to kill Margaret. The police would state that both women's clothes had been interfered with, but that's the only information I have in that regard. With the two adults now dead, that left young Vivian all alone in the house with Peter Manuel. Peter punched Vivian in the face, incapacitating her, before tying her hands behind her back and sexually assaulting her. Once his sexual urges had been satiated, Peter shot and killed 16-year-old Vivian Watt, just as he had her mum and aunt. He then covered each woman's body with bedsheets before leaving and heading home. And that was the end of part one regarding the story of British murderer Peter Manuel. Part two is available to listen to right now, so please check that out to hear the rest of this crazy story. I've got 15 new reviews to read across this two-part special. I'm going to do seven in part one and eight in part two, so I'm not going to completely overload you. Margaret in Canada left the following five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Interesting cases covered professionally with short asides make for a great listening experience. Very enjoyable. Thank you. Henry O. Webster left the following five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So glad to have stumbled across this little gem of a podcast. Love the content. I can even forgive the toe-curling attempts at accents. Keep it coming, mate. Welsh Flinty left the following five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Found this podcast last week. It's now my second favourite and I follow loads, going through them all. Nice soothing voice and some excellent cases being done. Cheers, Stuart. Natty C left the following five-star review on Podchaser. I've listened to a lot of true crime podcasts and this is my favourite. The host is fantastic. Great storytelling, wonderful humour and a voice that you can't get enough of. I'm addicted. Cheerio. Natty also bought me a beer recently. Thank you very much for that. Ruth Ann Wiesenthal-Gold sorry Ruth, left the following five-star review on britishmurders.com. As so many before me have said, discovered your podcast by accident, was hooked immediately by Facts, but your programs have had me in your grip sense. Your style, your research, your presentation are all just, well, superb. Stay with it, even if you do have a self-admitted short attention span. Mr. J.R. Ward left the following five-star review on Apple. His delivery is so laid back and respectful whilst he still manages to deliver the most disturbing cases. And finally, H32, a fan of the rapper perhaps, left the following 5 star review on Apple Podcasts. As a criminology tutor, I recommend this to students to look at the background of specific crimes. I like the quick no-nonsense approach as it means I can binge a couple of episodes in a dog walk. Probably not the case for this special, but that's really cool to hear that criminology teachers recommended my show. Thank you so much, Margaret, Henry, Welsh, Flinty, Natty C, Ruth, and Mr. Ward and H32 for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode? You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, PodChaser, or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis like Natty C did via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each of those on my website. Thank you also to Patricia Debiech, who bought me three beers recently and sent me an email to say how good my pronunciation of Polish names is. Sarcasm detector exploded. I hope I didn't say your name wrong just then. Patricia said, great podcast and sense of humor. Enjoy. I certainly will. Thank you. Thank you as well to Emily Brennan and Kerry Lloyd, who recently joined the show's Patreon. Please continue emailing your case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me on social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but when I get round to it, you will get a cheeky shout-out too. That's it for part one. Please make sure you check out part two right now. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.